It's really simple. You listen to your body. So many people are disconnected and they don't. But it's just listen and understand that you don't have to drink eight to ten glasses a day. You don't have to walk around with a water bottle all day and you will still get benefits if you just make small little changes and make that water and fluid work for you. Welcome to the Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Today's guest is Stacey Sims, PhD. Dr. Sims is an international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who has a particular focus on exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. In this conversation, we focus on hydration. What does it mean to be hydrated? How does hydration affect performance? Should we be drinking plain water or adding electrolytes to our water? The importance of glucose for hydration. Is it possible to drink too much water? How can we determine if we're optimally hydrated? How to stop peeing so much overnight? And much, much more. Please enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later your results show up in the Inside Tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com 
forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Stacey, welcome back. I'm very excited to be talking all things hydration with you today and in particular how hydration can affect someone's physical performance, whether that's running or lifting weights or, or playing sport. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me. People are probably going, what What does she know about hydration? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we start there. Maybe, you know, I'm curious about your sort of personal interest in hydration. I think from, from the reading that I've done, it seems that this is, is sort of where your interests lied in the early stages of your career. So perhaps you can speak to what it was about hydration that piqued your interest. Yeah. Um, so it really started when I was um, racing Ironman and doing my PhD, looking for a PhD topic. Um, and I was uh, racing Kona and got to Javi, did the turnaround, came back, and I was like all puffy going, what the hell is going on? Ate some electrolyte tablets and had to pee like a racehorse. And then was like, what was going on? So when I got, you know, after the race and talking to people and um, talking to the other women that had done the same kind of heat acclimation and everything coming from the Southern Hemisphere, those of us in the high hormone phase had significant hydration issues. And those in low hormone phase didn't. And so that was kind of like the trigger point for my PhD going, okay, what is this between menstrual cycle phases, between men and women in the heat? What is hydration? How much do we have to really kind of look at hydration? So then I took an idea from NASA about plasma volume expansion using sodium to see if we could hyperhydrate or somehow manipulate our plasma volume to improve performance in the heat. So that was kind of like the jumping point for hydration. And then the more you learn about hydration and the more you learn about um, the small intestines and how everything is, is absorbed, the more you realize how much stronger marketing is over science in the whole hydration world. Mm. Okay. Well, there's a lot there for us to, to sort of unpack. And I want to explore um, how we know if we're properly hydrated, uh, whether whether water is sufficient. You mentioned electrolytes um, there. I think people will be interested in uh, whether or not they need to add electrolytes and, and even glucose comes up in, in that conversation and um, whether that changes throughout the, the menstrual cycle, um, how to kind of calculate our fluid requirements at an individual level if that's possible. Um, but perhaps to kind of preface all of that and to explore some of your research and learnings with working with people and, and also um, sort of fine-tuning your own performance, perhaps we, we take a step back and look at some of the basic biology. So I think there's that fact that gets thrown around um, quite a bit that 60% of the human body by weight is water. I think it's a little bit less for females. You can um, help us clarify that, which works out to be about 40 liters of water. And my understanding is that that kind of two thirds of that is within our cells and the rest is in plasma um, circulating through the blood or sort of between cells, the interstitial fluid. Um, so when, we, when we're talking about being hydrated, is, it, is this what we're thinking about, these kind of three main components, or are we talking about the water in circulation or in cells? Like what is, the, 
what what is the most important sort of aspect of hydration? When we're looking at hydration and the measurements that we have, like osmolality, urine-specific gravity, that's all more of a measure of the plasma volume, how much water you have in the blood. Um, because when the plasma volume starts to shrink through sweating or through illness, sickness, that kind of stuff, water from the other parts of those compartments start to come into the plasma space because we need to keep the the cells and everything that's in the blood more viscous in order to actually be able to circulate blood. Um, so that's why when we talk about hydration and losing X percent of body water, total body mass uh, during exercise can have some kind of performance decrement. Um, and that all has to do with how much water is available for thermoregulation. When we look at it from an illness point of view, if you have been vomiting or you've had diarrhea, then it's not quite the same, I guess, aspect of dehydration because you're losing water from other spaces because it's not just pure sweat. But again, if you were to measure it, it would still come from what is going on in the plasma. So it's a, it's a nuance that people don't really kind of get. So they're like, oh, we can use an oral rehydration solution, both in illness and in sweat. Um, capacity, but they're not designed for the same thing because the dehydration aspects are a little bit different. So we can look at the amount of water in plasma or in our, sorry, the the volume in our blood. Mm -hmm. And we can use that as a bit of a proxy to understand how well hydrated our cells are. Am I hearing that correctly? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. And where do where do electrolytes come into this? So, um, is I know it's not as simple as just drinking enough water, for example, and you're going to get adequate hydration, particularly if someone is sweating um, a lot or in sort of humid conditions. So, um, can you maybe speak to the role of electrolytes? And and I kind of think back to my early years in university, learning about sort of water homeostasis and concentration gradients. What do we need to understand here at a high level to to then be able to to kind of speak to the use of electrolytes within a hydration strategy? We have to understand the pressure that occurs in the small intestines. So if we look at the upper part of the small intestines, it's very sensitive to pressure changes. So if we look at what the optimal pressure is, it's around 200 milliosmoles. um, And this is, you'll hear milliosmoles or millimole per liter, that kind of stuff, because it's all about a pressure gradient. So if you're drinking something that's too concentrated in um, carbohydrate, for example, so like typical sports drinks, and it comes in, it raises the pressure in the small intestines. You can't really absorb anything. So why people start to get sloshy gut and feel very gaseous and, and uncomfortable because water has to come from other parts of the body to dilute that carbohydrate, dilute that pressure to bring it down to that optimal pressure in order for things to be absorbed. Now, the flip side of that is if you're just drinking plain water, you don't have enough um, of, of stuff in there to exert a pressure. So then this is where the body's like, hey, we need to add sodium. We need to add some glucose in order to activate those fluid absorption gates. If you're looking at drinking water with a high concentration of sodium, which often, you know, we see this being pushed by more and more sodium, the more extreme exercise you do, you need sodium, 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 then it can also cause issues because then you have too much sodium. And so the body has to dilute that again before things can be absorbed. 
So when we talk about electrolyte and electrolyte replacement, this is another misnomer that we find in marketing versus science. Because a lot of times people talk about, oh, you need sodium. Yes, you need sodium, just a little bit of sodium to, to activate all of our transport mechanisms when we're at rest. When we're exercising, we need sodium and a little bit of glucose because we've had blood flow diversion away from the gut. So we really want to work with the physiology under this hypoxic, under this hot environment. So we want to have enough stuff in the fluid that we're drinking, not to tip the pressure over, not to be too low, but to actually be adequate to activate all of those fluid transport mechanisms in the sm small intestines, which is primarily sodium and glucose. So if you have uh, about a one to 3% solution, so that's one to three grams per hundred mil, that's optimal. That's optimal hydration for um, you want the lower end for just kind of like daily hydration. If you're in a hot environment and you're not used to it, it's at the end of the day and you're trying to get on top of your hydration. You want that around 3% when you're exercising. That's a one to 3% sodium solution. Carbohydrate solution. And I'll get to the sodium part. Now with sodium, we look at um, minimum really is around uh, 40 millimole per liter. So if we look at that as grams, we're saying, yeah, okay, around 100 to 120 milligrams of sodium per liter is adequate. When we start getting above 360 grams or milligrams per liter, we start getting in that too high of sodium state. So we'll see products out there on the market. It's like four or 500 milligrams per liter. And it's, and this is where that whole idea of, oh, we need to replace sodium. Like when we're sweating, well, I'm a salty sweater. I need to replace sodium, but you don't because we can afford to lose up to 50% of our sodium stores and not be affected because we're just looking at how the body is transporting water from one space to another. Yes, it uses sodium, but it's not sodium deplete. You want to have a little bit of sodium in the stuff that you're drinking, but you don't have to go to the extremes. You don't have to take salt tablets. You don't have to take electrolyte tablets because you're not trying to replace. We're trying to work with that small intestines to maximize fluid absorption. So I actually have a, an electrolyte um, product in front of me, and it's not, not a sponsored one, so I won't even read out the name of it, but it contains 276 milligrams of sodium per 200 mil so that's Woo! over a gram over one gram of sodium you don't per, need that much per liter right okay so a couple of questions here and and i want to step back through some of the things that you've been over because i'm conscious some people might be listening thinking okay how do i actually just work this out um because we're talking about millimoles per liter and, and things like that um so the first my first question is i'm Let's let's say I am not a professional athlete, but I'm someone who uh, does some hit classes throughout the week. I go for some runs and I do some resistance training, and so I'm I'm sweating. I'm doing more than a sedentary person. And currently, my strategy is to eat a healthy diet and to drink plain water while I'm exercising in the lead up and after. So. Am I am I leaving some performance, some well-being slash performance on the table by approaching my hydration from that point of view? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. We see people walking around, you know, with bottles and like, oh, I've got to drink two liters or whatever. And it's these full big bottles, right? And they're trying to drink that before they exercise. And because it's plain water, it stimulates what we call the low baroreceptors. So these are stretch sensors. So if you're drinking all of that water, the body's like, hey, what do I do with this? So it actually instigates you to pee more than you absorb. So people who are drinking these two, three liters and they're drinking all day and they have to pee all day. They're not actually absorbing it. And their pee looks clear because it's very dilute, but that is not an indication that they are hydrated. So if we're looking at someone who's just recreationally exercising, right, um, before you go, like an hour before you go into your HIT class, your high sweat class, you just want 500 mils of water with one sixteenth a teaspoon of just normal table salt. So it's like a little dash and maybe a teaspoon of maple syrup. So maple syrup has glucose and sucrose in it. So you have the glucose that helps. And then the sucrose is rate limited and broken down into glucose, which helps, and fructose, which activates another transport mechanism. But it sits around a a 1% solution. So it doesn't taste salty. It's not overbearing. You don't have to drink a lot, but that fluid is going to be absorbed. If you're drinking plain water with your meal and you have salt in your meal, then plain water is fine. But if you're trying to stay hydrated or purposely pour more water or fluid into your system without the food, you need to have a little bit of sodium and glucose. If you're going to be doing resistance training, plain water is probably adequate because you're not having as much of that hypoxic response. You're not having as much blood flow diversion away from the intestines, away from the gut. So it can handle a little bit more of that pressure differentiation without causing undue gastric distress. Is that the same if you're doing resistance training in a sort of cool, dry environment versus a hot, warm environment where you are potentially sweating a lot more? Well, I'll I'll put it in perspective. You're going to go to Boulder in like March and you're going to be doing resistance training. So it's very dry, it's very cool, and it's at altitude. You will most likely have to add a little salt to your water because you are still losing a lot of fluid from the altitude. If you're going to go to like New York City in January and it's cold and you're at sea level and you're doing resistance training, then you don't need the salt. But if you're going to go to Hawaii and you're not used to the heat or go to Bali from winter, right? And you're going into either open air resistance training gym or you're going inside where it's not as cool because they're not blasting AC, then yes, you do need to put a little sodium in, in there with your maple syrup because you will be sweating. So about 500 mils an hour before the your exercise, particularly if it's something where you're sort of exerting yourself beyond the kind of standard resistance training session. So if someone's out there running 15 kilometers um, or doing a hit type um, training session and that 500 mils has one sixteenth of a teaspoon of salt and one teaspoon of maple syrup, what about during the, the training, the exercise itself? You can use the same thing. Um, if it's not over two hours, but if you're going to go out for a long endurance session, then you need a little bit more of the carbohydrate in there. So that's when you're looking at, you know, that two to 3% solution. 
Um, and then you can get up to the 360 milligram sodium. Depends on if you're acclimatized to the hot environment or not. And is there an amount of, of sort of fluid intake that you like to give people a, a sort of guide um, during exercise? I, I know some people like Andy Galpin talk about looking at your uh, body weight in pounds, I believe, and then he divides it by 30. It gives you uh, a number which is like the ounces of fluid to consume every 15 minutes. It seems like a very specific protocol. Um, very, but, yeah. But if, but if someone's just thinking, okay, so I've, I, I'm hearing you with regards to 500 mils an hour or so before this um, salt carbohydrate solution, um, but during training, whether they're doing resistance training or running, like how frequently should they be taking in fluids and sort of how much? Yeah, I'm, I was just kind of chuckling about the Andy Galpin because old school exercise physiology, you can hear it in your head, a pint's a pound the world around. So two cups for every pound of water you lose. Um, so I think that's where his like calculations and everything come from. But um, everyone's a little bit different, right? You, you have people who are high, have a, a high sweat rate. Other people who don't have a, a, such a high sweat rate might um, hold on to more heat. Uh, we have people whose thirst is muted, other people who feels really thirsty. So I don't like to say, okay, weigh yourself before and after because it, it is an adequate indication, but it's not really nailing it down because it doesn't take into account what might still be in your gut, how much water was lost through muscle glycogen and liver glycogen utilization. So I just tell people, you know, have your solution. You might have to set an alarm to remind yourself to sip, sip, sip throughout the whole session. It's not every 15 minutes gulp. We want to just make sure that you're taking some in across that, that whole session. Um, I have some of my uh, more extreme endurance athletes use urine-specific gravity uh, tests. So we'll either use a refractometer or we'll use urine dipsticks that you can get like on Amazon that has urine-specific gravity. So you can see where you are before and after. And then you can do a specific intervention and be like, okay, well, I do this specific session and my urine specific gravity went from 1.010, which is hydrated to 1.030, which is around two and a half percent dehydrated. And then you do your intervention and you remind yourself to drink. And then all of a sudden your end point is 1.02, which means you've around 1% body water loss. So that's it's good because what we're trying to do during exercise is slow the rate of body water loss. We're not trying to stay hydrated because you can't. You can't physically drink enough and absorb enough if you have a if you are going out for a really sweaty session. So we're just looking at how are we slowing the rate of dehydration? What are we drinking to slow that rate down? If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTrack's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers 
including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What's the, the loss of water that would lead to a detrimental um, a- effect on performance? So this is the um, like the big question, right? Because we often hear one one to two percent, and you'll see a performance decrease. But what we're finding is that it's different between men and women. It's also different on uh, if you're heat acclimatized or not. We see that men can lose up to three to four percent of their body water, total body water, without any real performance decrement. But for women, it tends to sit around one to two percent. Because women end up storing more heat, and so they have less heat offload per unit of work than men. So there's that discrepancy of where do we find that performance decrement. Um, so again, I'm not a huge fan of trying to keep track of body water loss because it becomes really complicated, especially if you are not in a lab situation like the general person. It's like, okay, let's look at these sessions. Let's look at what you're training for. Let's really dial in the first, like you can biohack with urine specific gravity. You can biohack with body weight. Also thirst sensation at rest. Like if you wake up in the morning and your urine is a little bit dark colored and you're really thirsty, it's an indication that you're dehydrated. You're starting the day dehydrated. So it's getting people to tune back in and understand that, you know, 
what is it that is going to help me through this? If you are starting a session, you get orthostatic hypotension, you know, like the head swings and your heart rate's really high. We know that you're hypohydrated, that you're not hydrated enough to be able to do the work ahead. So I don't have specific calculations. I don't find that that works in the field. It gets really complex and complicated. Just really trying to get people to take body cues. If your body weight is low, you're thirsty, your urine is dark when you wake up in the morning. Yeah, you didn't do a good job hydrating through your your session the day before. So let's get on top of it. Let's do that 500 mils with a little sodium and glucose before you go out and then really focus on slow rehydration over the course of a few hours after your session. How important is distribution of fluid intake? So you mentioned small sips there. In terms of the overall net effect on hydration, is there a significant difference between, say, having most of your fluid intake you know, all at once early in the day versus distributing that out slowly across the day? Yeah, if you are gulping back a lot of fluid, you're going to instigate those receptors that's like, whoa, there's too much fluid here. I got to pee it out. So it's the same as like you're not going to eat your massive amount of all your calories at once because you're going to feel really bloated and end up being a little bit undernourished by the time you get to the next day. So with hydration, we're looking at, you know, slow rehydration throughout the day. If you're super thirsty, yeah, that's an indication that you need to throw some back. But If we're looking at how do we maintain hydration for health, then it's small sips. Um, But also being cognizant that it's not plain water because I can just see people are like, oh, I have this bottle. She says to drink, you know, sip throughout the day. But if you're sipping throughout the day without really paying attention to what you're drinking, you can lose the stimulus of what it means to be thirsty. How do you feel about distilled water then? It's water. It doesn't have to be distilled, but it's it's fine. Um, well, I, I ask that because, well, my understanding is distilled water, a lot of the minerals are removed. Yep. So that that would seem to be less effective from a hydration stat, uh, point of view unless you were adding something back to it. Yeah, absolutely. But like if people are like, I need distilled because I don't want anything in it, it gives them more control of what actually is in the water. Um, but yeah, it's just being cognate that if you are just using plain water, either filtered, distilled out of the tap, you have to take control of what the sodium and glucose is. If you are going to be putting in that an effort. Got you. So the water that you're like, you would personally drink throughout the day that has some, usually some sodium added to it. Yep. Yep. Okay. It does. Cool. I think that's a that's going to be news to to many people. Most people, yeah. I have friends that will go on like we've done a lot of industry um work together so we're flying from city to city. I'm the one that every time we're at a restaurant or getting ready to get on a plane I'm like sprinkling salt in their drinks and they're like, what? "Oh, yeah, that's right. Salt help me stay hydrated." So, yeah. What do you ever get any questions or uh, pushback from people who who sort of say, "Well, hang on, is adding salt uh, to to the water for the average person is that a is that a healthy thing?" Given the guidelines talk about limiting sodium consumption uh, from a cardiovascular or a kidney health sort of perspective, do you have any kind of views on that? I get pushback on that too, and when I get that, I'm like, okay. We want to look at what, what are we doing for hydration, right? We're 
looking at creating a fluid that's going to be optimally absorbed. If you are someone who has um, undercurrent of kidney disorder, cardiovascular disease, and of course you're going to be be careful with your sodium intake. But for the general person that sweats on a regular basis, then it's not going to cause issues. You mentioned before that you could have clear urine. You could be drinking a lot of fluid and it could just be passing straight through you. Is Am I hearing correctly that sort of a, a clear to straw color urine is not always a sign of optimal hydration? Yes, we, we look at using three key variables. We look at thirst, we look at body weight, and we look at urine color. Um, and we want to make sure that our body weight is stable, that we're not unduly thirsty, and then our urine is, is light to straw cup. And then we know that we're hydrated. Oftentimes when people are drinking all the time, they're always thirsty, right? And their body weight is, is, going up and down so much to like weigh themselves at night and they're way, way more than like the middle of the day, the next day. So it's an indication that there's a misstep in, in that fluid balance there, even though that their urine is light straw colored. So we go with weight, thirst, urine color, the WTU. Okay. WTU. And the weight we're looking at particularly before and after exercise. Yeah. And then every morning as well, like if someone's really conscious that they've just gotten somewhere and they're trying to stay hydrated um, and they're looking at their body weight changes, then if they're seeing like, you know, half a kilo less the next day, then you know that that's not tissue weight, that's water weight. Okay. So thirst, weight, urine color, these are sort of three very general things that anyone can do to to get a feel for their hydration status. Absolutely. Um, so how do you feel, and I think I know the answer to this, but <laughs> I want to ask it anyway. <laughs> okay. How do, you, how do you feel about the standard recommendations of eight cups a day of water? Oh, yeah. It's not based on anything. It's just like 10,000 steps a day. I'm like, well, why are people like – it came from a, a, a commercial. It came you know, from marketing, I think – think that and the 10,000 steps came from Japanese commercials where they're trying to sell water and they're like, you need eight cups a day. And somehow it became like the thing and it got wrapped into guidelines without any actual robust science behind it or people asking where it came from. The other fluid that comes up quite a bit when, when thinking about hydration is coconut water. So is coconut water a, a good fluid for hydration? Is that another thing that someone could sip throughout the day and it has enough carbohydrate and electrolytes in it to help with hydration? No, I love when someone asks me this question because then I can tell them the origins of the coconut water craze. <laughs> There's a lot Are of you myths. ready for it? <laughs> so back in the early 50s, there was a group of medical, like doctors and nurses, that went over 
I think it was Samoa or some other place and there was a lot of dysentery. And so they ran out of their saline solution to hydrate the population and they too got it. And so they know that, oh, wait a second. We know that coconut water has adequate potassium in it and a little bit of glucose. So they IV tapped the coconuts for rehydration in order to get home and then wrote about it and put it in the annals of emergency medicine. We had this this big surge of coconut water being so great for you in the 70s, and then it dissipated. And now again, we see this recurrence in the 2000s about it being such a great hydration drink, and it's everywhere. The thing about coconut water, it is really super high in potassium. Potassium is something that you need when you are severely dehydrated after exercise, like in a really hot environment, and you just can't get on top of it or you have had a lot of um, vomiting and or diarrhea because you have this huge misstep of um, sodium potassium balance, but it's not something that you want to drink throughout the day. It's not something you want to use during exercise because there's no sodium in it. Sodium is the critical one where we're looking at how are we getting fluid to go into the plasma space. Why is it that some of the electrolyte or most of the electrolyte supplements on the market contain sodium, potassium, and often magnesium as well? Because we've spoken about putting one sixteenth of a teaspoon of salt into your water, which contains sodium uh, in the form of sodium chloride, but we haven't spoken about whether you would add any other minerals to that as well and whether that would provide additional benefit. Are you, are you saying that we only need to think about replacing sodium? Not replacing, adding to help with fluid absorption, right? Potassium is essential post-exercise. And the reason why it keeps getting added to our typical sports drinks or our hydration, um, electrolyte tablets, that kind of stuff is because when we look at physiology, we see the sodium potassium pump. So we're pushing um, water out of spaces using sodium and potassium helps with that. But we're not depleting potassium like we are with sodium. We're not using potassium to pull fluid in and circulate it like we are sodium. Sodium is the critical thing when we're looking at how is it getting from the gut into the plasma space? Potassium is critical post-exercise when you have um, blood circulating the way it's supposed to, and you can rehydrate all spaces of the body. Talk to me a little bit more about the carbohydrate and, and how that's affecting hydration. If I look out to, I think, some of the marketing that's out there, you have a range of different ideas. So you have a lot of the electrolyte companies are now promoting that they are sugar-free, um, and then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have a sports drink like Gatorade, which has, you know, it's loaded with with sugar. So um, you've mentioned before a 1% to 3% sort of carb solution. So how are carbohydrates um, improving hydration? And I guess how do you feel about sports drinks that have a lot of carbohydrates like Gatorade? Yeah. Okay. I'll go through the physiology of why we need carbohydrate. And then I get a little, little bit of history lesson to give again, which I love. Um, so when we're looking at how fluid is absorbed in the small intestines, like I was talking about, you have that pressure and you have a, a sodium glucose uptake mechanism and you have a fructose 
uh, uptake mechanism. So when you're using a little bit of carbohydrate, you're activating more of the fluid transport mechanisms across the small intestines to get fluid into the plasma space. Again, if you are just using um, sodium, then you're not going to be able to activate all of those transport mechanisms because the body is going to have to supply some glucose, which is fine when you're at rest or you're just doing resistance training. But as soon as you start doing cardiovascular type work or you're in a hot environment, you have that ischemic effect where blood is being diverted away from the small intestines to the working tissues, as well as to the skin to offload more heat. So this is where you want a little bit of sucrose because it can be broken into glucose and fructose and you want glucose because then you can activate all of those fluid transport mechanisms to maximally activate and absorb the fluid that you are drinking. And then it comes down to, okay, what is this sugar-free electrolyte tablet doing versus Gatorade, right? So this is where we come back to marketing being stronger than science. If we think back to the origins of Gatorade, and this is in the 1960s, we've pretty much all heard the Florida Gators. And for those who haven't, in the 1960s, the, there was an assistant football coach who was coaching um, the um, University of Florida football team. He's saying, hey, you know what? All my players are having these issues and they're not staying hydrated. And his roommate was a renal physiologist. And the renal physiologist is like, you just need a little glucose and salt in that water and you're going to help your, you're going to help your athletes. So they did that. And all of a sudden the athletes weren't getting kidney stones. They weren't cramping. They were hydrating well and they were able to play better. And then they're like, oh my gosh, what is this about? So then they did a little bit of research and they started promoting it. And then it got bought by Quaker Oats. And at the same time it got bought by Quaker Oats, the FDA is like, Hey, you know what? We have to take this artificial sweetener off the market. It's not safe. And this artificial sweetener, what was, was in the original Gatorade to make it taste sweet by maintaining a 3% solution. When they took that artificial sweetener off the market, they're like, oh, shit, now we have to find a way to make it just as sweet. So they put more carbohydrate in. And instead of talking about it from a hydration standpoint, we're like, we need more carbohydrate because we don't want to bonk. We don't want to hit the wall. So we need carbohydrate to keep us going. So there was a nuanced switch from hydration to supplying carbohydrate for performance. So then we're seeing this marketing spin and then research coming out after the formula had already changed. So the research was coming out about carbohydrate availability because now we're getting into, you know, the upsurge of marathons, not wanting to hit the wall. What do we do? We want to have liquid carbohydrate to help us with performance. It's nothing to do with hydration. But everyone thinks, oh, I need this sugary drink to keep hydrated and keep going because you hear the marketing claims, you know, Gatorade does the body good because it hydrates us. And we see um, professional athletes slamming it down but the research doesn't support it. It supports carbohydrate availability, but it doesn't support hydration from it. And the pendulum swings the other way. And we see all these sugar-free electrolyte tablets with stevia or um, xylitol or some other sugar alcohol because people are like, oh, I don't want any sugar. I don't want sugar. I don't want sugar, but I need electrolytes for hydration. But it's still, it's not optimal because you need a little bit of that glucose to help with that fluid absorption. So it's kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fluid that has that one to 3% carb 
solution. And then separate to that is the discussion, it seems, around carbohydrate intake for performance as a distinct, yes. a distinct topic in and of itself aside from hydration. Yep, um, exactly. And that's kind of a little bit off topic, but perhaps we, we – we touch on that. So if someone is thinking um, they're an endurance athlete and they are going out for these really, really long runs, um, how? what's your preferred sort of method of carbohydrate intake during such an event? Yeah, my adage from um, creating sports drink companies and putting the message out about it is um, hydration in the bottle, food in the pocket. Because you only have a limited amount of fluid that you can take with you. So you want to make sure that that fluid is actually working for you in a hydration standpoint. And then you can tailor your carbohydrate and nutrition needs based on terrain, how long you're going, um, the temperature, if you're acclimatized to it or not. So if you're going to go out for a 90-minute tempo run, then yeah, you need to have some quick carbohydrates. So you might be thinking, oh, I'll take some glucose tablets or some jelly beans or some other kind of quick hit of carbohydrate just to keep my blood sugar up. But if you're going out for a three-hour run, you're going to want to look for a little bit more real food. So this is where like your sports bar come into play, or you might have um, a white bread and Nutella sandwich that's going to give you some carbohydrate, but also some fat and protein. So it's really tailoring what that event or what that exercise duration intensity environment is and the nutrition that goes with it. But hydration, because it's such, it's heavy. No one wants to carry a lot of water. So you want to make sure that it works for you. Today, low carbohydrate diets are pretty popular. There'd be quite a number of people doing those. Um, and I think there's enough research, at least that I've seen that suggests probably not optimal for high intensity kind of exercise performance but i'm thinking here from a from a hydration point of view if someone is adopting a low carbohydrate diet do is there anything extra that they need to do or think about over and beyond someone who is consuming a diet that contains sort of moderate amount of carbohydrates uh for staying hydrated throughout the day for like wellness or for hydration for performance both so if we're looking at staying hydrated throughout the day just for wellness, um, you want to, like if it's low carb and you're eating veggies, you want to make sure you put some salt on it so that you can absorb the water a little bit better. Um, often a lot of people who sweat a lot are low in their sodium intake. And so we see starting to have some issues there. From a hydration standpoint for performance, you have to have that sugar in there. You're not looking at it as, oh, I'm going to break my carb budget because I'm having something with glucose in it. It's not about that. It's about fluid absorption. It's really hard to change people's mindset around sugar because it's been so demonized and carbohydrates because they've been so demonized. But as a physiologist, I'm like, hey, to maximize the way the body works, you need certain components to really get that physiology working for you. So I try really hard to get that kind of separation from carbohydrates that you're eating for lifestyle and carbohydrates that have a specific utilization when you are performing. So, you know, you can go to that one to 3%. A lot of people will be like, ah, oh, I'm going to hit at that one and a half percent because then I feel okay with that amount of carbohydrate, but yet it's still functional. How many grams do you know roughly of carbohydrates is that? Um, so we go 1.5 per 100 mil. Okay. So it's not it's a lot. A, it's not a lot at all, no. So uh, you mentioned earlier, from an objective point of view, you can think about your 
body weight, your thirst, and the color of your urine as a kind of objective way to measure your hydration status. And that can be something that a male or a female can use. Um, but I'm, I'm interested, you also mentioned that uh, females have sort of slightly different requirements from a hydration point of view. So what are the main differences between a man and a woman in terms of hydration or sort of fluid balance in the body? And how does this affect, I guess, the amount of fluids that they require or the type of fluids? Um, so all the guidelines and stuff that are out there, again, are based on male data. And there is a little bit of research that's coming out looking, okay, well, what is it that is different between men and women with regards to thermoregulation and hydration? So Kate Wickham and Stephen Chung wrote this great review on sex differences in thermoregulation. I'm happy to shoot you through that PDF. And it goes through all the nuances of fluid balance and total body water. So women, by the nature of being women, have more fat, less muscle. So even if they're looking at an age and fitness matched peer who is a man or male, um, they will still have less body water. So when they start exercising, women's threshold for um, thermoregulation is different because they don't have as much water to offload the heat through um evaporation and through, you know, getting more blood to um, the cutaneous area to offload it through uh, eva or through um, conduction, those kinds of things. So we'll, we're seeing this discernible difference in heat tolerance and heat load between men and women. So then when we talk about hydration, this is where earlier I was talking about the body water losses for men and women are different before we start to see performance decrement. This is something that hasn't been addressed in, in thirst guidelines or fluid guidelines yet. So I know that Stephen Chung is working, has been working on it. Um, and when we start to put in estrogen, progesterone, there's a difference between high and low hormone phases, because when we get into the high hormone phase and oral contraceptive pill use, we see more sodium is kicked out. We also see a greater shift out of the plasma into the ECF, that extra um, cellular space. So there's less water available for sweating. There's no change in total body water, but there's a shift in compartments. So this is where we're, when we start talking about pay attention to thirst, it's not adequate for women because we have changes in our thresholds of body water and sweating and thirst sensation, especially in the high hormone phase. And our ability to offload heat is different than men. So when we're looking at what guidelines do we have for women, we don't have any yet. So this is where we have to really individualize it and be like, okay, we have to pay attention to what is your body weight? What is your urine color? How thirsty are you? Let's look at urine specific gravity before and after key sessions and really try to dial in how much you need for those sessions and what we need to do when we look at going to a hot or a cold environment. Because we can also see that in a long endurance race, Men will finish with high blood sodium levels. Women will finish with normal to low blood sodium levels. So again, it has to do with how much water they lose and how their body is using 
arginine vasopressin and aldosterone to control those fluids. So this is, again, when uh, ACSM is like, drink so much every 15 minutes, it doesn't work, which is why you have all these different ideas about drink to thirst. No, drink on a schedule where it has to come down to the individual at this moment in time. The urine-specific gravity test that you mentioned, is that something that someone would do with an exercise physiologist or coach, or how would someone access that? Uh, it's so easy. Um, we call it like, you know, I guess, basic biohacking. You can go on Amazon and you can buy the Roche USG-10. So it's just a urine dipstick, and it has you know all of the normal things, glucose, ketones, um, all the way down to urine specific gravity, USG. And you're just holding it up against the color chart to see if you're hydrated or not. So it's something simple that you can do at home. I used to instigate it in a lot of the training camps that I would help run. And you'd have all the athletes running around with their can of USG strips and they'd be all over the bathroom and they'd be competitive about how well they can stay hydrated. Super easy to do. So it sounds like if you wanted to take this seriously, you, particularly if you're an athlete, you would be thinking about your thirst, you'd be measuring your body weight on a daily basis and potentially before and after exercise, looking at your urine color during this year, doing this urine specific gravity test and sort of keeping a diary as to how you're faring on all of those along with what your current hydration um, fluid intake sort of looks like and then tweaking and optimizing from there. Yeah. And being very cognizant of the change of seasons. People will think that they have it all dialed in and then they're getting from spring to summer, right? Where you have some days that are hot and some days that are cold and their body isn't used to that change in thermoregulation. And it's the same as when people are, you know, used to cooler fall temperatures and then they have to go inside and exercise and it's hot inside from people running the heaters, right? So you have to be very cognizant at the change of seasons as well, because your hydration needs will change because the seasons and seasonality affects how your body's responding to the environment. Speaking of thermoregulation, you mentioned that before the differences between men and women and it kind of gets me thinking about sauna. I know that you're a, a proponent of sauna use, but is there a difference, I guess, in terms of uh, protocols for men and women with regards to sauna use? If we're looking at sauna for health, then we need to have a dose response that tends to be greater in women because um, a woman primarily will sit in the sauna and won't start sweating as soon as a man will. So we look at these these like dose dependent. If we're looking at it to use it for heat acclimatization, so you want a boost in total blood volume, men usually get those cardiovascular adaptations five days in a row, 30 minutes, five days in a row. Women don't see it until they have 30 minutes, nine days in a row. So it does become a, like a volume, a heat exposure volume dependency. Um, as long as you get that core temperature up, and you're starting to get that sweat onset, then that's where we start to see those health benefits. I'm sure people listening um, are curious, and, and this might be another myth that you can clear up or, or, or not, but when we're thinking about hydration, sometimes certain drinks come up that people may have heard are dehydrating, such as coffee and tea. So um, 
is it is it true that coffee and tea are dehydrating? Are there any sort of fluids um, out there that could be uh, working against us in terms of our um, strategy to be optimally hydrated? Yeah, so uh, coffee and tea, not dehydrators. They're not diuretics. Uh, Lawrence Armstrong, um, he did some really good seminal work on this out of Natick, really trying to dispel the myth on ca- caffeine as a diuretic. It ends up being a volume response. Because you look at people who drink a lot of coffee or tea, usually it's first thing in the morning, right? And they haven't had anything to eat or drink overnight. So then they have two cups of coffee, it causes that volume response, and then boom, they have to pee. Or two cups of tea, the same thing. Um, it actually can contribute to your fluid intake not giving people the right to drink five espressos a day, but you know you don't have to discount coffee and drink water to counter the amount of coffee that you're drinking or tea. When we look at drinks that are counterintuitive, we look at alcohol, of course, um, all the high sugar drinks, and this even includes things like kombucha. We look at things like um, a lot of the seltzer waters that um, have... Uh, flavoring in them. If it's not just the essential oil, then they're putting fruit juice in it and it can have a higher amount of carbohydrate and sugar in it. And that can be counterproductive. So again, it has to do with what is that carbohydrate content? You don't want to go over that three, maybe four grams per hundred mil. Um, otherwise it starts being counterproductive. Are there any other kind of major myths about hydration that we haven't hit on that you'd like to clear up? Oh, gosh. I don't know. There's so many out there. I don't know where to start. Um, people looking at fluid loading, like a lot of people like, oh, I'm going to fluid load before this event. So they, again, we'll drink a lot of water. Super easy. Just have chicken noodle or miso soup the night before because then you get a sodium and fluid load. And this helps increase plasma volume because when you're getting sodium and fluid, it bumps up the plasma volume. That's how you effectively fluid load. Other things is like salting watermelon or tomatoes in the summertime, because then you're going to be able to absorb more of the fluid from those really watery fruits and veg. I guess tomato is technically a fruit too, but anyway, yeah. So it's again, just being conscious of what it is that you're drinking and what it is that you're eating for fluid intake. So in the lead up to an event, let's say an endurance event, and let's say I've been monitoring over my training period the amount of fluids that I'm taking in, in the in the days prior, am I changing it? Am I actually increasing my fluid intake overall, the, the volume of, of fluid that I'm taking in to kind of prepare for that event? Um, no, because that can be counterproductive because, again, you'll get that volume response and most likely end up peeing out more than you're absorbing. So what we do in a taper week is we make sure that people are eating lots of watery fruit and veg and salting the food. And then the few days before when we want to cut back on the fiber, then this is where we're looking at using some functional hydration, you know, sparingly but sporadically throughout the day. So they're not ever drinking plain water. Um, and then we're like, okay, let's not have alcohol because that can be counterintuitive. Um, and again, dialing things in depending on is it hot or not. Um, but the biggest thing really is doing that that sodium fluid load the night before a big endurance event. Do you ever um, 
get questions about creatine or have any thoughts on creatine. Of course, there's, there's a lot of evidence to support creatine for athletic performance, particularly strength training. But I know some endurance athletes also supplementing um, creatine. And one of the questions that I often get is, or it's probably more of a concern, people are concerned that if they are taking creatine should they take it all the way up to an event or should they take it during a, a cycle and then stop before an event to reduce water retention there's this idea out there that creatine can sort of make you puffy is that something that you've looked at oh my gosh i get questions on that every day because i recommend creatine for women but just a, a low dose like three to five grams for gut health heart health brain health um, and athletic performance. If you are doing your standard um, creatine loading, where you're looking at having carbohydrate and water with creatine, you will get extra body water retention. That's because you're having carbohydrate with water and creatine in the muscle, you're going to get this increased bloating. If we are um, looking at saturation, some people will do a stepwise increase of creatine to get to a certain saturation, and they'll find that ha that helps eliminate that extra body water bloat. Um, and also depends on what kind of creatine they're using. If they're going for a cheaper version, then most of the time you will get bad side effects. But if you're looking at creapure or you know the pure creatine monohydrate that's instantized, you don't get the same kind of bloating effect. So when people are like, I'm an endurance athlete, I'm using creatine for um, muscle function and performance, should I go off it? It's like, well, we look at that saturation point. How long have you been using it? Are you up to that 20 gram dose? Let's drop it down to three grams, three grams a day to maintain muscle function, brain health, gut health, and help in your in your event and in your performance. So it's not completely cycling off, but making sure that we're not staying up at that 20 gram dose. Okay, that's interesting. So there's different forms of creatine monohydrate, and you're saying the instantized version may be better tolerated by some people. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, final question that I have, and then you can let me know if we uh, need to, to delve deeper into anything or, or perhaps miss anything. If someone is finding that they're waking up a lot during the night and having to pee, and they're frustrated yeah. because their partner sleeps through the night perfectly and has the best sleep ever. And they're getting up one or maybe two times being interrupted by this urge uh, to, to pee. What might be causing that? Is that something that someone can mitigate or, or control through any type of strategy? Yeah. So first is, um, this falls into so many people that drink water continuously throughout the day, like trying to get as much water in and their body's not absorbing it. So when you lie down to rest, and this is where your body does all its reparation and rep and, um, try to get all the functions going, you're going to have to pee because you have all this extra fluid that the body's like, I don't know what to do with this. So we look strategically at how much plain water you're drinking. And, and if you are drinking plain water, first, let's add some sodium, see if that helps. If that still doesn't help and you still have to get up frequently throughout the night, then maybe we have to look at backing up. When was the last time you had things to drink? Because a lot of people will drink water right up to the point that they have to go to bed. And again, the body's doing what it needs to do overnight, repairing and getting rid of things. So you have to wake up and pee. Um, so it's being strategic about, again, what you're drinking and how far away from bed that you are drinking it. 
Yeah, I think that might I might fall into that camp of drinking too much water with yeah. not an, with not enough salt, which I I presume is probably fairly common. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll go in and give a talk on like uh, a lecture on on hydration and you'll have people with their water bottles on their desk. And I'm always like, how many people have salt in those water bottles? No one raises their hand. How many people have to pee all day, every day? All the hands go up and it's like, okay, well, let's first put a little bit of salt in that bottle and let's see what happens. Do you have a sense with the athletes that you've worked with or the research that you've been involved in or read on what percentage of athletes do you think are optimally hydrated and really dialed in what percentage do you think are really leaving performance on the table i'd say maybe one percent of the athletes are really dialed in (laughs) not very many people are they put it as an x factor and they'll try to catch up just the same as almost all nutrition because there's so many myths out there and people are trying to figure out what works for them and it worked for so and so so i'll try it and the same with hydration uh especially in the endurance field where they're all like, oh, I'm going to use Tailwind. I'm going to use CarboPro. I'm going to use all these liquid calories. And then what's going on? I feel awful. I'm dehydrated again. Um, so yeah, not very many people pay that much attention. They spend more money on coaches and bike fits than they do on things that they control through their nutrition. Great stuff. Thank you, Stacey. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Is there anything that you think we we missed or you wanted to add before we kind of land the plane here? Uh, oh gosh, no. Nothing really other than, you know, it's really simple. You listen to your body. So many people are disconnected and they don't. But it's just listen and understand that you don't have to drink eight to 10 glasses a day. You don't have to walk around with a water bottle all day and you will still get benefits if you just make small little changes and make that water and fluid work for you. Yeah, I think you provided some really um, helpful information in in just helping someone on an individual level ascertain whether they're hydrated. And I really like that framework of thirst, body weight, urine color, um, plus or minus the urine-specific gravity test. I think that's a, a sort of great set of tools that someone can use to kind of guide them um, on this topic. Thank you so much for your time again, Stacey. I know you're um, welcome. myself and the listeners are, are, are really, really grateful for all the work that you do. Can you remind folks how they can find you online, connect with you? Uh, our website is drdrstacysims.com. And then Insta, and again, if you still use Facebook, uh, is Dr. Stacy Sims. And we've also started a TikTok challenge and channel. So tell me about the challenge. Uh, well, we're just starting to get people interested in some of the stuff that we're doing. So um, now is just looking at one of the best surf pictures you have of yourself. Okay. There you go. TikTok. We'll send people over there. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Stacey. There we go, friends. Thank you for showing up and the effort you're making to take better control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week for another episode.